Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Joining me today is Marion Medin, founder of The Soak, a new mental health concept integrating mental health care, well-being, support, and performance coaching. Launched last year at the height of the pandemic, Marion has seen firsthand the impact of COVID disruption on workplace well-being, both the good and the bad. From the isolation of lockdown to the newfound flexibility of remote working, Marion has helped to identify the challenges and opportunity that come from our new normal, while working to shift the narrative from it's okay to talk to it's healthy to talk. With the values of responsibility, integrity, and creativity at the heart of her business, and an extraordinary story of personal challenges that come from fleeing war-torn Iran to come to the UK as a child, this is the story of a founder with a view on what it takes to make a better life, both for yourself and critically for those around you. Mariam, welcome to Changemakers. Mariam, a very warm welcome to Changemakers. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Oh, a real pleasure to interview you. And and what an amazing story we're going to be able to share in in this episode, I'm sure. Now, in terms of framing your extraordinary life, I mean, from fleeing Iran to growing up in the UK to building a fabulous new initiative called The Soap, all of which we're going to talk about, I think to get us started, I'd like to start with your quote for life, because I suppose it's in saying, you know, those things about your journey, that it makes a little sense about try to learn a little about everything. Tell us about why why you've suggested that, and and I guess, crucially, what it means to you personally. Well, uh, I mean, my my personal journey, my professional journey, I should say, has got a little bit of law and a little bit of branding and a little bit of mental health and now a big bit of mental health. And I, I'm already thinking, what, what am I going to do next? So I've, I've really adopted that philosophy of, of trying to learn a little bit about everything and being interested in a little bit about everything. And I've been lucky that, to have a rich and varied life Mm. with the opportunity to pursue things that are of interest to me. My father was quite, uh, he he was quite eccentric in that sense. He always used to give us really sort of sweeping bits of mad advice. Didn't have a sense my have... daughter might be saying this in about 20 years' time <laughs> yeah. in an interview. <laughs> well, it, it, it sort of seemed to be out of touch with what real life was all about. So as I've mentioned also in, in sort of the, the quote. What, why, why was he out of touch, do you think? What was, what was his background? He was a dreamer. He dreamer. was a dreamer. Yeah, mm. he was a dreamer. And he really sort of had big ideas, big dreamy ambitions. It wasn't about sort of professional success or it was about changing the world. It was doing about about doing extraordinary things. Mm. And this was, you know, he, he, the advice he used to give was, you know, you should be able to sit next to a king or a street sweeper and you should be able to engage with them in conversation on an equal level, whichever it is. It did seem quite lofty then, and it seems quite lofty now, but it served me well because I I do try to be interested and learn a little bit about it. It served me very, very well, actually. Mm. I mean, I suppose when you learn a little bit about everything as well, as it kind of means you've got to be very situationally aware. You've got to, it's not just about reading books. It's about having empathy. It's about noticing things in people's lives. I mean, a little bit about everything can often sound, well, what, what is that? Well, it's actually quite a lot, I, I think, when, when you think about what it means that, to live life that way. 
Yeah, you have to pay attention. You have to be a good listener. I'm also a very good talker. So I, I sort of try to try to remind myself from time to time to just shut up and listen. It is about trying to learn and understand. And as you say, have the sense of empathy. And I think that if you have had a mixed bag of experiences over your life, some of those skills do tend to come more naturally than mm. if you have led a life in which you can afford to be oblivious to what's around you. So I would say that I've I've had a little bit of a push. Uh, well, I, I want to get into some of those, I suppose, core chapters in a moment. But I was reading a magazine article that you contributed to recently that, where you said that the most important values to see your, your business through adversity are responsibility, integrity, and, and creativity. Let's take an angle on why those three are, are so core to you. Certainly responsibility, I think, is something that I felt from a very early age, uh, partly due to family circumstances. And my parents were both emotionally vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, I felt the weight of responsibility of looking after their emotions and and other members of our family. It, it was something that meant a great deal to me from a very early age. I had to watch my words. I had to have considered considered responses and to understand that my actions would impact other people mm-hmm. from, I'm going to say, as far back as five or six. And I sort of understood that as I went through life, different situations gave cause to different weights of responsibility. After a while, it became about people trusting me and propelling me to do something good with my life, putting their faith in me, being generous with what they could do. And that comes with responsibility. Mm. When people are going out of their way to help you, then you have to adopt that. So when you talk about the five or six-year-old, presumably this is the five or six-year-old newly arrived from Iran um, as a refugee in the UK with a whole new life being built by your parents in a country that they had probably never intended to live in in the first place. I I mean, how does that... How does that shape the, the the conditions of, well, I suppose it has shaped a lot of what you've said in terms of the careful consideration and things, but in terms of how that affected you, the person, and your outlook, either positively or negatively, it gives a sense of actually, I guess, that that very important part of that early early story in your life, Marion? I'm very flattered that you think I was five or six after the revolution. I'm afraid I was a little bit older than that. <laughs> I, actually, uh, I actually came to school here when I was five. I came to boarding school here when I was five. Uh, my parents lived in Iran. My brothers and I were sent abroad. Life was all quite blessed and free from adversity uh, until the Iranian revolution in 1979. And I then went to Iran in 1981 for what was supposed to be a brief holiday and ended up getting stuck there for for nearly four years. So when I came back, um, the point at which I did have to apply for asylum, I was by this stage about 15. My parents stayed in Iran. They had by this stage lost everything. And my mother effectively gave me a a £10 note and said, this is now the last thing I have to give you. 
uh, you're on your own. That must have been extraordinary. I mean, you say it so calmly, but I mean, in terms of the turning of your world upside down. Yeah, it was. I had spent the last sort of three, three and a half years in Iran saying to my parents, you've got to get me back to the UK. Mm. You've got to get me back. And they kept saying, we've got nothing to give you. What are we going to do? Just sort of dump you there. And I was like, yes, that's that's all I need. Just get me back and I will do the rest. And it was a case of be careful what you wish for, because that is exactly what they did. And my mother left me at Heathrow saying, here you are, here's the last 10 pounds I have in the world. And the only thing I ask is that you keep the promise that you gave, which was to try to make something of yourself. When, when um, you see, um, when you see, you know, a very recent moment like Afghanistan, where many people are here in the UK in ways that they probably never dreamt of. How does that make you feel? Is it a sense of deja vu? Or do you think, what do you think things have changed between then and now? No, I, I, it feels very, very different to my experience. I arrived at a time when I was welcomed, I was supported, Uh, I was interesting. I was an interesting story. Everybody was generous and kind towards me. And at the risk of sort of, you know, sounding a bit pompous, this is the result. I am now a woman who is able to run a business, has done plenty of good things for the society in which I live over the years. I've contributed. I've, I've tried to play my part. And I think what we now have is this image of refugees as being a drain on society. Mm. And in fact, my experience, my personal experience, and those of whom I know, are all people who say, give us a chance. We want to, I mean, there's nothing better than an economic refugee, frankly, because they're the people who are pursuing opportunity and a good life and want to do something remarkable. I, I read that you, you know, you you said, I believe sincerely that you will not get more hardworking, dedicated, mm. committed employees than people who have risked life and limb to create a better life for themselves and, and their families. I mean, you know, when you when you think about the role of migration and, and great societies, I mean, that, that free movement of people seems to be a very common part of the stories of some of the greatest cities and countries mm. the world the world has seen, I guess. Yeah, there isn't a shadow of doubt in my mind that those are the people who are hungry and desperate to prove themselves far beyond anything that somebody who feels a sense of entitlement to where they live uh, will do. I mean, I, I've now been a, been a British citizen for, I think, 25 years or so. Mm. And I've... I've, I haven't been born here, but I've been raised here largely. And I'm still conscious that I must make my hosts feel welcome, even mm. though I feel very much a sense of ownership over, over London, certainly. I was going to say, because I mean, you um, use the word host. I mean, that's an interesting one. I mean, I mean do, do you feel home in, in Britain yeah, and in London? I, yeah. I feel very much at home in London. But I am also conscious that I, I came here as a guest and I, and I stayed. I overstayed my welcome. And now <laughs> I've got you've to... You've stayed your welcome by the uh, sounds of it. <laughs> I've, I've uh, now got to prove that it was the investment that this country made in me was worthwhile. And actually, what may be a particularly relevant point in my life story is that I applied for political asylum and I was refused. Mm. But I was given something that was called exceptional leave to remain, which tr 
loosely translated is like saying, well, we don't believe you. We don't think your life is in danger if you go back home. However, we're prepared to take a chance that you might be worth keeping. And that leaves its mark on you. You know, See, you I, do I spend think... the rest of your life thinking, okay, they, they took a punt. I'd better well, prove them right. Well, you better prove them right. And I suppose in your own mind as well, this kind of extraordinary love of knowledge and the idea about learning that little bit about everything. And I suppose it sort of, it explains some of the building blocks. Now, you've mentioned how... I guess family played such a such a, a formative part in your story and and that you spent a lot of time in a responsible role now very very sadly you, you recently lost lost your mother which obviously I'm, I know we would want to express our, our condolences on but that you had spent a, a large amount of your adult life caring for your mum I mean tell us a little bit about a bit about that and and I, and I guess the effect that it had on you in terms of how you tended to look at things. I'm actually going to rewind to a story about my father that I think was um, life-changing for me. I was about 13 or 14. This is when I was living in Iran post-revolution. For some very bizarre reason, some years before, my father's eldest brother, in the way that bizarre Middle Eastern rituals go, had decided that he would buy a giant plot in a cemetery for all the members of the family. Mm. So he had literally counted his brothers and sisters and their offspring and their spouses and thought, right, here are 30 graves right next to each other. Fast forward the Iran-Iraq war, and suddenly the price of these graves shot up because there were just so many war dead. And my father was absolutely destitute. He had lost everything. He had not a penny to his name. And in his infinite wisdom, decided to go to his eldest brother and say, could I have my grave, please? And his brother said, no, you can't. Um, This is for the family. And there then followed a huge family row about my father wanting his grave and my uncle not being prepared to give it to him. Uh, The reason which my uncle gave was, well, because then there are going to be sort of 10 members of the family, a complete stranger, another 10 members of the family, a complete stranger and so on. And my father told me this story and the two of us were howling with laughter and crying at the same time at Mm. just the surrealness of the whole thing of my father saying, give me my grave. My uncle saying no, because we don't want a stranger to be buried among us. And my father saying, I don't care where I'm buried, just leave me on the street. Now, the tragedy and the comedy in that at the same time stayed with me uh, and stayed with me still as a pinnacle moment in my life of, of sort of understanding human emotion and how complex it is. Mm. and how tragedy is mixed with comedy. And and also, actually, in that moment, I think I realized there will never be anything in my life. I'm not saying I laugh at other people's lives, but nothing in my life that will be too tragic for me to laugh about. Uh, And that's shaped everything that I have lived through. Well, and, and I suppose it shapes your sense of resilience. But Does it also, I mean, you know, because this is a unique set of, you know, I suppose, family experiences and Mm -hmm. and the, you know, the the outcome of which is last year you launched The Soak, uh, which is 
a new mental health concept, bringing healthcare, well-being, support and performance coaching. What I'm wondering is the degree, and I want to talk about the SOAP um, in a bit more detail, but in terms of what gets you there, do you, do you think that sort of that strand of caring that I guess, and family, that is such a, such a big part of your hinterland, certainly as it comes across in this interview. I mean, is that what we should take from it in terms of the, the formative thinking, the thing that gets to the Mariam of today, I guess? I think that it's an interesting question because I feel to some extent that I am here despite not having that sort of family, the scaffolding of family to some extent that I could sort of climb up. And what I've discovered and what's kind of brought me here is this sense of um, collaboration. So, so many different people in my life have played a role. Even today, I would say that I look back on my life and I look at the various sort of decades or, uh, uh, you know, little chunks of years. And I remember people, I I can relate it, I can say, well, that was the period in my life when so and so was helping me. And that was the period that so and so was helping me. And it it sort of feels as if I was some sort of, you know, symbolic baton in a a relay of human kindness, because people just kept passing me on and on and on. What would have happened to me if I hadn't had those people? I don't know. I don't believe that I I, um, single-handedly would have got myself here. It was absolutely this sense of being able to rely on others and rely on... Mm, I mean, mean, what a beautiful phrase, a baton in the relay of human kindness. I mean, there's such lyricism to that. I mean, and, and and I think, you know, goes so far in explaining i guess your your outlook mary i mean tell us a little bit about about the sake it comes across when you read about it that that this is this is very much your life your passion project something that has phenomenal potential to make a, a really big difference let let's let's introduce people to 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 what you're doing I mean, uh, the reason I I arrived here to some extent was because I woke up having measured my life um, or or my life success by the financial results. I I ran a branding company and from one year to the next, I I could only say if I was doing well and whether I'd arrived at my destination um, if the the numbers were good. And it just Mm. didn't feel very satisfying. So I wanted to have... Uh, a new way by which to me- measure my own achievements and and sort of uh, my life. And so there was something meaningful that I wanted to do and something that I was very interested in for, for various reasons that we've already touched on from my background. And, and, and was, may I just ask, in, in that environment, were you aware of the mental health challenges for people around you in terms of that must deliver growth culture? I was fortunate enough to uh, be in a position where about 10 or 12 years ago, I was able to take one day off uh, from work and pursue something that I was interested in. And and that was training as a psychotherapist. And having come from a commercial background and a commercial background in which what I did was very much sort of focused on on service, I suddenly thought, my God, there is a, a huge void here. And there is all this conversation as the years passed, the conversation continued about you know, the importance of destigmatization and how we should all feel sort of completely comfortable to talk about our mental health and so on. But actually, when people came to 
um, experience it, if they try to pursue um, some sort of mental health care, the experience was very, very different to what they'd heard. So you still were treated to some extent as if you had an illness rather than something that was a, a common situation that we all experience. I think the, the ups and downs of, of sort of emotional well-being fluctuate in all of us. So the experience was, was very different. Uh, it was quite clinical. There was no service. There, was, there wasn't a single touch point between you as the user and the delivery. So you walk up to the door of the therapy, open the door, your therapy starts there. What happens in between that sort of moment when you think, I think I need some help and walking in through the therapy door, nothing. This mm. was what was going on, nothing. So in terms of the concept, I mean, w- w- was there a moment in time where you thought, I've got an idea here, or was this just a sort of learning process over, over a period of time and, and a set of experiences? The sort of eureka moment was actually when I was studying psychotherapy, and I remember turning to a couple of friends who in fact now work at the SOAK and saying, I think, I think things should be done differently. And, and then I went off, I went back to my, I, I worked as a psychotherapist for a little while uh, on a part-time basis in, in a refugee center. Uh, and then I went back to my branding life and all as the years passed, I kept seeing the conversation sort of explode about mm. mental health care. And, and I was still getting calls from friends saying my experience has been X, Y, Z. I don't want to carry on. I don't want to take my child to see somebody because I'm afraid that they'll self-diagnose or self-stigmatize. So I just thought it's it's about time somebody did something. And mm. and since nobody else was doing it, that was that was my opportunity. And, and how has the pandemic impacted the soak? I mean, obviously a lot of your early phase has coincided um with with our experience of, of the pandemic in terms of how, how it's affected the concept and, and how you see it going from here. Tell us a little bit about that. I don't think that the pandemic has really made a difference to us as a business. The only way in which it's been noticeable is that we expected to have a lot of preaching to do to corporates. We always thought that we would like to work with big organizations and tell them about the importance of mental health Mm. alongside physical health. And that's been something that we haven't had to do. They're, They're approaching us now and saying, help us create that thing that makes our employees feel safe and happy and so on. But in terms of whether or not, you know, we've seen a sudden sort of deluge of clients who are coming in because of the pandemic, I wouldn't say that's the case Mm. at all. We have seen an upturn in younger people, but funnily enough, that was not when sort of isolation and and uh, someone was at its peak. It was when people had to go back to school and back to work that the problem reared its ugly head. Mm. I mean, I mean, a lot of people talk about mental health as as the new pandemic. I, I think you mentioned something very interesting there about, about the changing attitude of of leaders to it in terms of. I guess it speaks to a broader corporate consciousness, a, a responsibility, in terms of what's driving it do you do you get a sense that where has the awareness among leaders come from in terms of those that you're talking to that are now saying well actually 
we didn't do something then, but we are now very committed to doing something now. I think that the response or the responsibility of leaders to their employees has always been fairly uniform. And what happened with with the pandemic was that suddenly they had a walk a workforce where there might be five different, wildly different ex- responses or experiences of exactly the same thing. So we all experienced the pandemic in our own way, the lockdown. It would depended on your lifestyle and where you were and so on. So I think they, they realized that to keep their workforce happy, if they had one way, mm. then, you know, potentially a quarter of their workforce would be happy and the other three quarters would be miserable. And therefore, they're now looking at ways in which they can create an environment in which they can serve all of the needs of their employees while still remaining consistent and fair and responsible as well to all of their stakeholders. So should we feel optimistic that there is a more human era in the workplace emerging? I mean, this is this is what a lot of people are hoping for, is that it's a more understanding environment, one that can put, put people and I guess purpose first in terms of an order of, of priorities? Or, or, or do you think, or do you think, or do you think actually, you know, the leopard doesn't change its spots, that there is a you know, there is an element to which business is always going to be driven by the harder metrics of performance and profit. And and, and often people pay the price for that. No, I I definitely think a a change is going to come, as they say, that without a doubt, in order for organisations to remain relevant, they are going to have to change things. It's not an option. And actually, one of the things that was quite interesting about the pandemic was that the, the sort of seeking a purpose was something that was assumed to be relevant to the workforce of the future. And companies were trying to be proactive in preparing themselves to meet it by having a purpose, by having sort of a vision that they could engage people with. What happened was through the pandemic, actually a lot of people of of every generation, the older generation started to reassess what mattered to them. Mm. And now that sort of future need has become very current, very present. They need to be able to inspire people, their workforce today. And that range could range from a 23-year-old who's getting their first job all the way up to the 55-year-old who's on, on, you know, on the boards, part of the C-suite. Everybody is seeking more than the transactional relationship of, you know, I show up, I do my work, I get paid, I get I leave. <laughs> And, and I suppose we're, we're um, regrettably, Marion, we're, we're almost out of time. But I suppose this this brings us back to the search for meaning that human beings go through in their lives. We mentioned your mum's passing o- over the summer, and you said that my new normal is not having to worry about her anymore. And this combination of there is something liberating, but also something missing all of the time. Mm. In terms of, I suppose we're now talking in the in the early autumn. In terms of what I feel, I'm speaking to a person that, that continuously learns things about themselves and learns things because situationally their environment changes so often. In terms of what you have learned about yourself over this this very recent time, and actually how it makes you feel about the future, what might you share? Um, I think that generosity 
has played a huge role in my life. I've been on the receiving end of it an awful lot, and I try to practice it whenever I can. And my mother was was a particularly generous woman. And what I have taken away from her life, what you know, the, the legacy, the legacy that she's left me is that there is always payback. There is, you know, if if you show kindness and generosity and faith, faith in people, I mean, you will get it back. Mm, circularity. Um, circularity, absolutely. And I think that's that's probably the, the thing that certainly when I look at my mother's life and I think, well, what, what did she give me? I mean, a sense of humor as well, because my mum, like my father, did have a sense of humor and needed to, frankly, uh, because she had she had quite a difficult life. But yeah, I think those are those are the lessons that every single day, every single day, I see it, I see how being generous, whether it's with your time or your your kindness or your knowledge, whatever it is, you will always get it back tenfold. And that's that's the rule by which I hope that I live my life. It's certainly the philosophy that underpins uh, the, the company that I've started, everything, you know, we have a great big sign downstairs that says be, be generous. And everything that we do is geared towards going sort of beyond the call of duty. Um, if I if I may very quickly give you one example of that. A little while ago, we were having an operations meeting on a Friday and my mobile phone rang from somebody who I, I wouldn't normally expect to hear from sort of during working hours. So I apologized. I picked up the phone and it was somebody saying that a friend of theirs had gone off the rails and his wife had tracked him down and he was about to jump over a bridge and they so they sort of caught him and brought him home and so on. Uh, and he didn't know what to do. Now, this was a case that was way beyond our, our pay grade. You know, somebody at, at that level of crisis, we would normally refer to, to an inpatient unit. So I, I put the phone down and I shared this with my colleagues. And it was like dropping a little bomb in the middle of all these sort of mice. They just mm. all got up from their seats and everybody went into a different direction and picked up the phone. And within an hour, we had a series of solutions mm. for this person. Amazing. And there was nothing in it for us. But I would say if I look back, in fact, uh, tomorrow is our first birthday. If I look back on the last year and everything that we've achieved, that moment is the moment I'll take away with me. Well, I have to say, Mary, happy birthday on that. And thank you, thank you for sharing much. that. I mean, I, I have to say, you said at the beginning of this interview, try to learn a little about everything. Well, I think, you know, everything is that that generosity of spirit. And I think throughout this interview, you, you've, you've not only shown why, but you've been a great example of it. So, Mario Medin, thank you very thank much you so for joining much. me on Changemakers. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating?